Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So welcome to today's podcast and uh, another really interesting and exciting episode, something that's incredibly topical at the moment because it seems to be touching uh, just about every aspect of our lives. We've been discussing it for a while. Um, I wrote a piece about this um, over a year ago, uh, but very much in in the in the public eye. And I managed to get a a, a real veteran of the industry um, who's got a lot of uh, in, insight and and knowledge uh, about the space to uh, to come and talk to me about this. So, if I could uh, welcome Alistair Boyd to the show, who is a, a real veteran of the semiconductor industry, um, and we're going to talk today about all the supply chain issues. What's happening? Is it going to change? Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? And and what's coming? But if if we could just start, uh, Alistair, by you uh, explaining a, a bit about your background and and um, and where you're from and and how you got into semiconductor space. Okay. Well, um, hello everyone. Uh, as Ryan says, I'm Alistair Boyd. Um, it's actually forty years this year since I left university. I am. Um, I did a degree in electronic and electrical engineering at Glasgow University. I'm originally Scottish. Um, and I was always interested in electronics. Um, but it was also a toss-up between computer science. And I I swithered as to which way to go. Do I go down the electronics route or go down the computer science route? And in the end, I decided to go down the electronics route. So when I left university, I got a job as a design development engineer with what was Ferranti uh, Defence Systems in Edinburgh. And I ended up designing uh, or working on ring laser gyro inertial navigation systems for several years. Wow. So I was, um, I, I did, I worked on fire control computers for Singapore Skyhawks. I did flight trials. And when I was working on the fire control computer, I was a senior engineer and uh, I had to lecture. So I had a bunch of Singaporean engineers from the Air Force over. Uh, maybe about, I think, 15, 20 of them. And I had to lecture on the architecture of the box that I was a senior engineer on. And that's what gave me this little commercial spark, if you like. I had to write my own lecture notes, present it, and I thought, hmm, maybe there's more to life than being stuck on a bench. Yep, so, yep. <laughs> yeah, so age 28, um, I used to have all these technical sales guys come to see me, and I thought, I could do their job. And uh, sure enough, a vacancy came up at a semiconductor company called Burr Brown. And I went for an interview. I was the first guy they ever hired from a non-sales background, from a pure design background. And HR said, no, no, he's too old. He's 28. We don't want him. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so but the sales manager <laughs> did. So yeah. I, I went into Burr Brown and I did well. I was a, a naturally talkative engineer. Uh, which is quite a, quite an unusual thing to get engineers that like especially talk, electronics right? engineers yeah yeah 
Yeah, so um, but I think coming from a systems background where, I mean, I was used to thinking systems. Yeah. That's what stood me in good stead. And I had a strong technical background. So I did that really well. Well, I did that well. I enjoyed it. I learned my craft in technical sales. Um, and uh, after six years, I got headhunted. I went to join a, comp- a semiconductor company called Maxim. You've probably heard of them. Um, I did well there. Jack Gifford himself, the founder, promoted me. Um, various, my first big promotion. I relocated to England. So this is my expat life, hey. if you like. Um, and I've been down here for 26 years. Um, so I did well at Maxim. I was there eight years. I ended up as a director running Northern Europe. And one day I thought, I'm going to change. So I went to Linear Tech. Um, Linear Tech, lovely company. I was there 15 and a half years, ran all the cold countries. I also ran Israel. They figured being Scottish, I was more aggressive than English guys. So they would, um, it's the accent. Let's, give, <laughs> let's, give, let's give Israel to Alistair. He's Scottish, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So, I, so I set up the legal entity and hired the first people in Israel, wow. um, which was an interesting experience. And then one day we got the phone call that Analog Devices was buying Linear Tech. Wow, yeah. So I was at ADI for three, three, three and a bit years, and then uh, age fifty nine, sixty, I've now set up my set up my own business, which I've been do, doing two years. So now I teach LinkedIn to technology companies on how to use LinkedIn properly. So that's what I do. Uh, so basically, helping new technology companies to um, to do that sort of sales and marketing piece that you sort of specialized in early on. Well, it's, I'm at the stage now where I like teaching. Okay. Um, and if I can help younger people come along and pass on some experience, then that's fine. You know, I enjoy that. Cool. So, so basically, that's me in a nutshell. And, and uh, a reference point on that, uh, so Linear Tech are kind of a little bit famous, if you like, in the electric vehicle space or the battery system space because they were really early with, a, with that dedicated uh, battery management um, IC that's pretty much the the standard um, in the industry today. Yeah, well, well that, that was actually quite an enjoyable aspect. And that's also where I use some of my LinkedIn skills because um, I focused on automotive in LinkedIn. And Linear Tech was one of the first, one of the early first generation companies to do with the LTC 6802, 6800, 6801, 6802, battery management chip for lithium ion cells. Um, and it's, it's actually quite interesting because it was only, I mean, Linear Tech at the time had a huge market share in the emerging, what were the emerging EV cars, especially those in China. Yeah. Um, and it was only by learning about real life problems with noise immunity and data transfer yeah. in a horrible environment that you then moved on to maybe third generation products which yep. are very robust. And it's, it's, th- it's that technology that forms the basis for what is ADI's wireless BMS mm. chipset, uh, chipsets. So, uh, so yeah, it was very, very interesting to talk to some of the uh, emerging smaller companies who were coming up in that space. Yeah, I remember way back doing the trials and testing on those LTC parts in uh, battery packs and having lots of issues with the, uh, sort of um, noise problems and uh, resistance to transients and, and things like that, which very, you know, excellent process working with uh, with Linear to, 
to get those all of those sort of bugs ironed out and uh, a really robust product in the market, <clears throat> which is fantastic. So the, the 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 topic of today's discussion kind of came about. Um, actually, you know, your LinkedIn stuff was being uh, effective, and and I saw you talking about this. I was about to do a, a podcast about this. This is, this is a little bit different to the the normal format, um, but. Um, I, and I, I asked you as an expert uh, who actually knew what they were talking about rather than me, who was sort of making it up as I was going along, if you would come and, and talk about the problems in the uh, in the semiconductor industry, because it, it doesn't feel like you can go very far these days without um, sort of seeing and, and feeling that the, the impacts of all these supply chain uh, problems that we've got today, um, which are really, you know, get hampering so many sectors and 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 uh, and fields and and actually it's, it's quite hard to sort of really work out or get to the bottom of of what's causing it you know and, and, and i expect we'll talk about that um it's not a simple answer I, I don't think um but really um a lot of people are asking me you know what's going to happen um where does where does the what what does this look like in the future because at the moment it's almost impossible as an electronics engineer to design a new product because you don't know if you're going to be able to get hold of the parts yeah, um, that's true so very, very difficult. So I, I wonder, you know, if, if you could um, just kind of start us off with your take on um, on, on where the industry is at and, and why why do you think that we've got this sort of absolute crisis um, in the in the semiconductor world? Yeah, you're right. It's it, it is complicated. Okay, um, you could say that it's actually a a combination of a perfect storm with different events factoring in. So from what I've read, I mean, going into sort of the entrance to COVID, you know, COVID time period did have a, a it did have effects. Now the effects that happened were specifically relating to the automotive industry was they with COVID lockdowns and shutdowns globally, the automotive manufacturers forecasted a downturn in the number of cars and vehicles they would need to make. Yeah. So they cancelled their backlogs on their whatever semiconductor supply chains they had. They cancelled backlogs and they burned off inventory. Now, going into COVID lockdowns, what then happened was people were, were they were locked down. They started to work from home. Uh, so guess what? That meant the consumer products just went up exponentially. So things like you know setting up people to work from home, laptops, phones. Um, and also children's gaming, you know, machines, right? Yeah, yeah. They just took off. So mm. they took up. So bear in mind that the semiconductor manufacturers themselves were also suffering from COVID issues, primarily to do with workforce. Um, so, and especially with that downturn as well from the automotive industry. And, and they were struggling to get their act together to maintain the same level of output. Um, so would you actually look at what happened then? So automotive companies are used to just-in-time operation in their supply chain. Now, that's great when things are normal, but yep. when things are not normal, then you've got a problem. Um, so you throw that in, this big surge in consumer-type products and computer-type products um, take up a lot of semiconductor capacity. Then at the same time, you've got uh, delays in the whole way through the manufacturing chain for semiconductors. So the raw silicon wafers, be it 200 millimeter wafers or, or, or leading edge 300 millimeter wafers, then you've got, you've got bottlenecks in um, assembly where 
you know, you actually take the bear dye and package it. So they've got different countries with different issues and maybe Malaysia for yep. packaging. And then you've got the test issues as well. So there's bottlenecks every way along the chain. And it just takes one it just takes one issue to be very, very difficult. And then you throw in some strange ones like uh, um, fires in Texas or bad weather in Texas or brownouts, right? And then Renaissance had issues in, in Japan. So you throw all these little factors in and it just causes this massive headache to actually get stuff made. So I think in terms of, I think the industry, I mean, what's happened, it's, it's, to sum up, it's really just a, a mismatch between demand versus supply. Yeah. That's it in a very simplistic term. But the semiconductor industry is ramping up, is growing fast. Um, and I think what it has shown within the automotive industry is that the, the automotive manufacturers need to rethink their supply chains. So, yeah. and, and again, I've, look, I've looked at some of the, and I've always been slightly confused about automotive guys. They have they have confused me over the years because I'm never sure what they are. <laughs> Sorry. Right? Um, in my mind, either they're just big system integrators, right? right? Yeah, Where they yeah. take black boxes from their tier ones and tier twos, yeah. or are they technology companies? Now, so you look at you look at what's happened with the real technology companies like Apple, okay? When and and, and Dell, these guys when there's a shortage coming, they know how to act. And I think that's what's happened is that apart from maybe Tesla and Toyota, who are beginning to do, they're beginning to act like technology companies in terms of getting their own silicon made. Yep. But the rest of the guys are acting like system integrators. So they're going to have to figure out what it is they want to be and how they get better relationships with, you know, at a high level with the semiconductor suppliers. Yes, it's interesting problem um, in, in automotive, particularly. One of the other issues that often gets raised with me is that, um, you know, effectively the automotive industry is is very tough on its supply chain and has mm. driven down margins, um, you know, over over years. And therefore, you know, actually profitability is not great in the automotive sector. So there's good volume there, but um, not necessarily profitable volume. Um, and, and that's sort of caused a reluctance on behalf of some of the uh, semiconductor companies to to make investments in the space. Cap also sort of coupled with a lot of the components. Like in auto automotive, we've got this quite sort of unique um, issue where if when a component is designed in, you know, it's validated, extensive testing's done, that part's designed in, it's really difficult to change that then because you've got a whole other set of testing costs. So kind of moving around um, and and changing the supplier of a component, even on a if it's a like-for-like -like component, is is actually quite difficult within the automotive space. So they don't have the flexibility to change um, suppliers once production's up and running. But they've typically, you know, been been quite tough on that supply chain. Having you, I mean, you've been on on the sort of um, semiconductor industry side of that in in your career. I would imagine a number of times. Do you think there's anything in that? I understand. I understand the limitations in automotive, right? Um, now, in terms of dealing, uh, it, it goes back to the question: Who's the customer, right? And again, this is part of the confusion about the automotive. Who is the customer? Because the automotive guy may not buy anything. 
Okay, he, he's not the one placing purchase orders on the semiconductor manufacturer. That could be a tier one guy like Bosch or Continental, uh, tier two, it could be a Valio, it could be a Vistian. They're the guys who actually place the POs on the semiconductor company. Yeah. So, so the question is, who's who's the company now? The automotive guys might have all these liabilities about if you don't deliver X quantity on a particular date, you get all these penalty charges. But it's, it's one of these things that it's and at the same time, if you've actually been screwed down to be a low margin business, do you really want to be in that business? So if you've got, you know, you've got you you could you've got a capacity to make a particular number of a specific component. And you can sell that stuff at a much higher price, higher margin to an industrial guy who isn't going to hit you with all these consequential damages. Who do you want to do business with? Mm. Right. So I think now at the same time, right, we all know that the semiconductor content of automotive of cars is going up hugely, right? Yep. Now the question is then, is that old model of of, of pushing your supplier down into low margin business with lots of horrible terms and conditions, is that going to work if your semiconductor content goes up by a factor of 10? Yeah, you need to be forming stronger partnerships with these companies. Um, one, one other thing, actually, that was a sort of an interesting little nuance on it um, was that, uh, you know, because of this sort of design cycle and the components getting designed in, a lot of the parts that are used in, in automotive, so you've got you know, broadly speaking, we've got kind of microcontroller type devices and we've got power type devices. And in, in the, the microcontroller or the processor industry, we've effectively year on year, like new capacity is created through the design of, of better devices, basically, where you get more devices mm -hmm. per wafer. But a lot of the devices used in automotive are actually fairly simple. Um, and, and you're locked in quite often to an, you know, a five, six, seven year old, um, if, if not longer, um, device so you're not necessarily taking advantage of the late, latest uh, processor technology but then also the the that design is typically going to be on an older you, you mentioned earlier 200 mil and 300 mil wafers you know which has, has been another change in the industry to to increase capacity going you know in, increasing the diameter of the wafer, wafer so you can get more components on a wafer but again a, a lot of the automotive parts are locked locked in on those uh, older 200 mil wafers and, and it's really difficult to change that manufacturing process to a to, to really create extra capacity without just installing more lines and 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 more equipment which is a, a difficult thing to do you know again again based on your experience in the industry is that something that you recognize where maybe the new capacity is going into the sort of uh, sexier micros and the you know sort of nanometer feature sizes and all this kind of thing well, there, the industry is in two halves, right? And it's, it's as you said, you can have functions that need small geometries, okay? That will be there'll be then this a fourteen, ten nanometer uh, area, or it could, and on a three hundred mil wafer, right? But then the automotive on the power side is moving to new technologies, so silicon, silicon carbide or gallium nitride. Now they're they're different. They're they're what's called more than Moore. Now Moore's law talks about you know, the number of transistors doubling on a wafer every yeah. year, and that's where that's where the the small node geometry products are coming in. They're the ones built by TSMC or Samsung. Um, 
And that's great for real volume business, but automotive is fundamentally a, a high mix, low to medium volume business. And your products need to last for decades, for many, many years. So it doesn't actually matter that you're not on the latest uh, small geometry type product. I think it's probably only when you get some some new features like um, when you move to autonomous vehicles and you need the latest lidar technology that are the, the real lead, leading edge stuff. But for for analog type components or mixed signal type components, you don't need to be pursuing that that race down the rabbit hole of of small of small geom of small nodes if you like, um, and you can't compete. Even even the biggest automotive guy in the world can't compete when an Apple comes along and says, "I want X gazillion number of products based <laughs> yeah. on this process." Right? Because yeah. Apple's taken up most of TSMC's fab capacity for their products. Right? Yeah. So it it's actually okay for the automotive guys to be on older processes. They don't need to be on it for their functionality and for their longevity of their products. They just need to get better at their supply chain. Do you think though? Those older parts that are create an issue in terms of new capacity. I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't think they are because there is a lot more demand for the two hundred millimeter wafers. Mm. Okay, so that might put a, a lead time issue on the two hundred because a lot of the industrial guys also want these high volume, say these high mix, low volume type products. Uh, on the on the smaller on, on bigger geometries, but they've got extra bells and whistles, and mm -hmm. that's what they mean by more than more. You're getting different types of packaging. You're getting different types of thermal performance. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the foundries need to have more capacity on these 200 millimeter wafers, but in terms of the fact that these products are going to have to be supported for a long, long, long time for the life of that car. Um, that's in some respects you don't really want to go down to the, the huge volume Moore type path. It's right. not suitable for, for automotive. Okay, yeah, and 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 the power devices are interesting in themselves because there's not all that much from a technology point of view. You know, if if, if you've got a silicon carbide device, there there are some things, trench devices and things that can be done to get more devices per wafer. But fundamentally, the amount of of devices. We, that you can get on a wafer for a given amount of current or power switching capability is is quite fixed. So if you've got a big increase in demand, which is is coming for power switching devices from all sorts of sectors, from energy, from electric vehicles, um, robotics, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then um, creating new capacity really can only happen with new lines and and, and new manufacturing yeah. plants. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that's what takes time. That's why. When you've turned something off, turning it back on again is difficult. Mm. It, it, it takes a long time to get new. I mean, if you look at what people at TSMC are doing in terms of setting up in America or setting up in Singapore, it takes time to do that. You can't just suddenly turn it on. So I think, you know, you asked originally where where will things get to? And I think I think the semiconductor industry things will get much better, but I think at the same time. The, semi the, the automotive companies need to get a much better handle on the silicon that's going into their cars. Yeah. So, for example, again, it goes back to this. It's almost like a three-way relationship between the automotive OEM, the tier, their tier one, tier two suppliers, and then the semiconductor OEMs. It needs to be a three-way alignment so that BMW or Audi or, or Tesla, they know exactly 
how many Intel parts, how many NXP parts, how many ST micro parts or Finian parts going into their particular brand of car. Yeah. And the question is, do they, and do, of, those, of those parts that are going into a car, do they know the ones that are strategic? Mm. The ones that they desperately cannot do without, and are they then working with the, the, the semiconductor manufacturer to put in accurate forecasts to say, hey, look, this is the demand for BMW, this is the demand for Audi. That's what they need to get better at. It's, the onus isn't just on, I mean, the semiconductor guys will ramp up as much as they can for their global demand in all applications, but automotive guys, I think, just need to improve how they engage in their supply chain. Yeah, and I think that's I think I mean I mean there was I mean great article came out of Harvard Business Review that said that CEOs only spend one percent of their time with suppliers, and and this goes back to you know this is where the the Teslas are are winning they're having high level engagements with the semiconductor suppliers yeah. and that's what that's what the other guys the Fords of the world that's what they need to do as well have that relationship with semi guys and I think I think that's particularly important if you are more of a system integrator than a, a technology developer. You know, if, if you kind of control the vertical stack, um, you know, maybe actually what you do inside is more important than, than outside. But if you're very reliant on that supply chain uh, for that, for your technology, um, then, then, you know, you do need a high level of engagement. It was interesting. You, you mentioned um, earlier that Tesla and Toyota and you, you've got some of the tier ones who've kind of dabbled a little bit, but Tesla obviously sort of it's well known that they've got into the design of um, their own um, high power processing modules. Mm -hmm. And and Toyota quite interesting because actually for years now, um, I think I don't even know how many years, but they, they've actually um, designed their own uh, switching devices. Um, mm -hmm because they had a unique operating voltage level in the Prius powertrain, uh, I think even from first generation Prius. So they've, they've got a certain amount of expertise in the design of, they do some of the packaging, I think, in-house. I'm not sure if they actually do the fundamental foundry stuff in-house. Um, but, but on there, people like Bosch, who've, you know, obviously Bosch mm -hmm. are into everything, but Bosch have some in-house development and manufacturing for semiconductor parts, but an awful lot of, have bought in pieces as well. Do, do you do you you know do you have a view on that in terms of what the right or, or wrong approach is in that in that space? Well, again, it goes back to what they want to be, right? So I think it's, I won't say it's schizophrenic, but the the fact is that is are the automotive other automotive companies do they see a strategy to become a technology company? Right now, Tesla is a very interesting company. I can't see a note huge amounts about it but all i know is that when you start designing your own silicon or working with third parties to get your own silicon your own unique silicon designed for your product they tend to move quite fast um but then tesla's got his hands is is it is in a whole lot of other areas like energy so i so it's funny i, I probably disagree with some people in the past but i've always i've always pegged tesla as an energy company yeah. Right? And then they're competing with oil and gas industry now. So rather than just a purebred automotive company, because I think it's all about moving energy around and they're into solar panels or into, you know, second life batteries, you know, Tesla's power walls and stuff. So yeah, they're, they're a very diverse company who think about technology. So the question is for the other guys, 
do they think about technology in the same way or do they want to become just better system integrators? Yeah. Right. And and you can do both paths, right? You can. Um, but if you if you if you decide to stay in the pitch of just being a systems integrator, but get good at it, then as long as you're building those three-way relationships to include the semi the key semiconductor suppliers for products that go into their cars, then that can't that can't hurt. That's that's only got to benefit them all. It'll, and it'll also benefit the semiconductor guys, right? Because the last thing you want is some some big guy shouting at you and demand banging the table and demanding product. And and that's what happens when shortages happen. You know, it shouldn't be he who shouts loudest gets a product. Um, it's it's like he or she who works with us carefully and tells us what their demand is and allows the semiconductor companies to plan for it. They're the ones who will get the benefit. Yeah, it's interesting because it almost the whole sort of manufacturing process methodology in the semiconductor world it doesn't align itself to a kind of one piece workflow lean manufacturing model that the automotive guys have got at the at the vehicle level so you mm. you by nature in semiconductors you have to you have to process batches at, at, at in a at one time you're making sometimes thousands of components on a single wafer but you'll be processing multiple numbers of wafers i think 24 25 wafers or even more um at a go you know th through a process which actually um takes a really long time like these manufacturing to to process a wafer from bare wafer to finished uh component it's not a kind of two-day job it's you know weeks and weeks and weeks to uh yeah. to push that all the way through so you've got a lot of material tied up and components tied up in inventory and a fairly long cycle time to, to go through through a plant which um mm -hmm. you know if you're not holding inventory and stocks, you know, then creates a big problem when you're ramping up again. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other, the other question I think people should be asking all of their semiconductor suppliers is where's the product made and how's it made? Right. Because many semiconductor companies have their own wafer fabs um, and, and they, they might have a, a, a strategy whereby they build some products internally in vertical integration or some they go outside to outside fabs. Okay, so knowing now if you can do something internally, if you happen to have your own wafer fab, you you might even do your own assembly, you might even do your own packaging, uh, your own test. You can prioritize. Yeah. But if you go to an outside fab, fab like uh, TSMC or USMC, it's much harder to get them to change their schedules to accommodate you. Okay, yeah. so so if you can understand that you've got say ten absolutely, you know, products that are strategic to your manufacturing operation, if you understand how they're made and where they're made, then you can have a different conversation. And so, well, and to a certain extent, that kind of fabulous model is, is, is what they call it. Um, has been very popular over the last few years, particularly with investors. In, in in newer businesses com coming up through the semiconductor because obviously building a fab is a really capital intensive task right. you've got to have a certain amount of volume going through it for it to be profitable um and a lot of companies have gone down that fabulous model historically but um yeah you you do wonder how sustainable that is in in the long term because you kind of i i, I got, got a bit of experience in semiconductor space uh recently and you know un understanding how how the process actually in the design are so interlinked on these sort of um 
higher higher tech products if you like so you know the 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 manufacturing process is not a simple commodity that you can just farm off to joe and he's going to do it and you know you get your parts back the manufacturing process actually and the process capability really drive what you can do from a design point of view with the devices so there's a very very close uh, linkage there and the development of better devices is often completely dependent on the development of a better process or the improvement of some sort of process technology mm-hmm. element so um do, do you think that the fabulous model you know is is the best model for the future or do you think we'll see companies start to move away from that i, I don't th- no i don't th- i don't think they'll move away because i think there are some applications and some functions that's only by having uh it's only by having the the really leading edge fabs that tsmc or samsung might have that they can make these products so yeah. I think no. The, the answer to your question is it depends on the application. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, it really does, right? Because you cannot have one size fit all. Now, the the whole the whole thing about going fabulous and uh, these guys are really good at what they do. You just have to hope that no geopolitical events come in that could affect that supply chain, and that's why risk management is now a big a big important part of supply chain. And that's why Europe, the EU, is getting much more. They want a larger share of manufacturing in Europe. Uh, and America does as well. Because America, I think I read somewhere it was like 1990, it was almost like high 30s, just under 40% of their products were made in America, fabs in America. And now it's, I think it's like 12%. Yeah. So they've, they've pushed manu- uh, fab- fabrication offshore. Mm. So again, going back to risk management, they're trying to bring it onshore just to reduce the length of supply chains. Um, so I think, I think what you'll find is things will eventually settle down. We're, we're, in, we're in a particularly turbulent period over the last couple of years. But then again, you always get cycles in the semiconductor industry anyway. Yeah. Um, it's just been excessively bad this last couple of years. Um, but I, th- I, I, do think semi, I do think automotive guy. no, take a step back. Everyone knows the, the semiconductor content of cars, of automobiles, is increasing significantly. Right? So that means that you have the attention of the major semiconductor players. Right? So, they all, so they're staffed up. They have more and more sales and marketing people engaged in automotive, as in trying to build relationships with the OEMs, yep. servicing the tier ones and tier twos, and also looking at some of the emerging technologies, right? So so all the if, if you read the annual report of all the big semiconductor guys, automotive comes through time and time again. So you've got their attention, okay? What you can do is work with them at higher level um, to, to say, look, how do we partner together? How do we share technology together? How do we talk to each other about our business together right yep. that's what needs to improve even if you don't want to become a fully fledged technology company but you want to just put all your 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 boxes together as a systems integrator you can still have those conversations because i think they'd be pushing on an open door quite mm-hmm. frankly it's in it's in both parties interests to develop better relationships mm-hmm. yeah one one thing that strikes me as a maybe a driver for where some of the issues have, have, have risen and you, you just mentioned it actually that in the past uh, a lot of the manufacturing has, has moved uh for semiconductors to, to asia um so the, the two sort of big names you mentioned samsung and tsmc 
are you know a vast obviously that there are a couple of the players in the US and in the that sort of contract um fab business and and some US chip makers with their own in-house manufacturing as well and and da, da, da. but but predominantly you know semiconductor production is 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 in Asia i guess it's always struck me as a bit strange really that that happened in the first place given that as an industry you know it's it's pretty much um there's very limited amount of labor going into actually making uh, wafers. You know, it's a very highly automated um, process. Uh, but why, why do you think that happened? Why, why did the manufacturing go, go that way? And, and how, does it, how do we get it back? Well, that's, I mean, again, good question. But I don't know the history of TSMC. I've not read it, okay? Mm. All I can think of is that um, it's expertise and knowledge right um they have they have they have found their niche and it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger and it just so happened that the functionality and the performance they were offering the market was very attractive to many of the big semiconductor guys so i, I mean I know i've got lots of books on semiconductor history and, and so on and and one from my last employer analog devices you know they developed uh, you know, public domain information, they developed a very early relationship with TSMC. Mm. And they talk about it in, in their book on history of, of ADI. So TSMC obviously had something to bring to the party. And I think it was obviously uh, what they could offer in their fab processes. Um, people in some of the smaller guys, so you would find that you might have a, a like what used to be um, jazz, semiconductor, uh, jazz semiconductor or, or tower um, they, they would offer like a silicon germanium process and people would go to them for very, very high speed RF type semiconductors. So again, it goes back to, and I, I am slightly confused about, I, I need to read more about it, about what the, you know, what the EU is trying to do, because I think the, the amount of semiconductor manufacturing in Europe is quite low in compared to America and certainly Asia. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit like, well, apart from throwing money at stuff, what do you want to actually do? Right? Yeah. Uh, and then there's been a lot of dialogue about the UK in semiconductors. And I was going, well, again, what do you want to do? Because, you know, that boat for the UK, that boat sailed decades ago. Mm. So my, my gut feel on these companies are these challenges is you need to pick your niche of what you want to be good at. So it could be that there's going to be a lot more performance areas in what, what are called more than more. Okay, where you're adding all this extra functionality and bells and whistles onto, onto the, the functions available. And, and some of that stuff is going to use high-speed interconnect using photonics. Um, it's going to be SIP packages, SOC packages. So I think if the UK, for example, were to find a niche and dominate that niche and get world-class in it, then people will come to them for that type of functionality. Yeah. Um, so you cannot be all things to all people and expect to win on a global stage. You're going to have to find your niche. So do you, do you think it's practical, you know, could we expect to see more uh, semiconductor manufacturing capacity in the UK? Or, or do you think there would only be... We, we, we don't really have the fabs we used to have. Mm. And, and then there's all this hoo-ha about, you know, whether certain parties or some countries are going to buy the fabs we do have over here. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, starting from scratch is difficult. Um, you certainly can't compete financially with the sort of the Moore type fabs. Like the again, again, TSM, it's, you, yeah. it's just too expensive, right? So you need to pick a niche of what you want to do. Um, 
I, I, I just, we're not going to go down the more, we're not going to go down the more route in the UK. Just can't afford it. Yeah. Um, so we have to find some other route to go. And that, that's um, the, the, the current sort of direction appears to be around compound semiconductor devices yeah. uh, for the UK. Yeah. So some White investments. Band gap stuff. Yeah, in Scotland, in uh, silicon carbide, um, in, in, in manufacturing for that and, and various other things going on around the country. Uh, which, which you know, power devices, so obviously key, mm-hmm. key components in, uh, in drive lines, but not really looking at um, processing technology. I think we've got a bit of a photonics industry in the UK as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and some big projects happening on, on that side. The, the, the EU strategy, it's an interesting one as well. So that's basically where my understanding of that, they said, right, it's such a underpinning sort of cornerstone of all of our industries. If we don't invest in semiconductor, um, you know, we've, we've got a problem. Historically, we had issues with, you know, governments in other countries supporting capital investment, you know, much more than we did. So we're going to throw money at it, like you say. And um, and the hope, I guess, the hope is that some of that sticks to the wall, and um, and we end up with some some you know really big increases in domestic um, manufacturing or you know, EU based manufacturing for uh, for semiconductors. But it's it's a long game. Um, I guess in in your time in the industry, you've seen a lot of new fabs and facilities built um, by the companies that you've worked with. Can you you know as, as a sort of idea, how long does it take? from sort of planning to a new facility, churning out parts that can actually be used? Well, I, th- I think you have to assume you can get the staff, right? So if you can't get the staff, I mean, that's, that's I read about, uh, you know, again, public domain information. It was an article about TSMC moving to Texas. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Intel there. You know, even just hiring the right people with experience, when, you, when you're the new boy and you move into a territory that's got a big incumbent, it's not easy. It really isn't easy. So I think there have to be the people, they have to have the skills and the experience. So you either have to grow them mm-hmm. organically yep. um, as you as you scale your business, or you have to bring them in from outside. Mm. Um, and that's and everyone's gonna be everyone's looking at um, the I mean, I read somewhere that you know Tesla's looking for battery engineers mm. with you know six figure salaries type thing. Um yep. So yeah, if you've got to get the people. First of all, you've got to figure out what you want to do, right? And if you get that wrong, it's a waste of energy. But if you get it right, and then you try and build your business and scale your business and stick to, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, guys like you know companies like Maxim and in the days of Jack Gifford and and, and Linear Tech and with Bob Swanson, the reason they were so successful. From, from going from tens of millions of dollars to billion, one and a half billion dollars, was they had a strategy and they stuck to it. Mm. And they were consistent. And that's why they were successful. Right. Um, so saying both companies got bought, but they were yeah. successful up to that point, right? Um, yeah. Maybe that yeah, was so, their idea of success actually being acquired uh, at some point. Oh, no, no, no. Successful as in they were both highly profitable companies, yeah. right? Very profitable. And they, they had their niche. But, you know, even, even I mean, people people look back on linear tech with fondness mm-hmm. because great technology. And, and what people forget about is the average lead time for a linear tech product was four weeks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Four, and the, the ability to hit that was over 95%. So that's because the whole company was vertically integrated, did its own fabs, its own assembly, its own test. Yeah. Um, they must have held quite a bit of inventory as well, though. 
Well, it depends on how you define inventory, right? Mm. So it goes back to what does the cost of a wafer start, a wafer compared to having having wafers in inventory or do you have finished goods in inventory? Yeah. Uh, right? From an accounting yeah. point of view, it's much cheaper to have a wafer. Yep. And and the other thing, the other thing that people are not aware of is that when you start a wafer, you might get a if you if people have a delay in their product in their lead time, it could be to do with um, yield. You might yeah. not get the yield you expected. So when you when you run your own fab and you start wafers, you can have what's called a phantom wafer lot two weeks behind. So that it's the same wafer, but it's just two weeks delayed. So that if your first batch doesn't give you the yield you need, mm. you've got more wafers. You don't have to wait for the full fab processing time. Yeah, so so that the yield issue is quite an interesting one. Where again, I think a lot of people just assume it's it's like a sort of printing press where you and a, a full wafer of parts comes out. But actually, the like I mentioned earlier that the manufacturing process is so complex for these things. It doesn't take much to um, to give you a, a problem, and you might have a particular region on a wafer where the components uh, aren't viable, don't don't work properly. So we talk about yields and, and dropout, and and sometimes that yield can be quite high. You know, sort of. 20%, 30 um, fallout rate. So, you know, an 80% yield or 90% yield. So 90, anything north of 90 would be considered good. So you always expect some devices to, to not be viable. Uh, but it, it is a, it is an issue in the, uh, in, in the industry, uh, which is, I guess if you're vertical, you can do more to control that. Whereas if, if you are fabulous and you, you're in the supply chain, actually, It'd be really, really hard to do that because the, the, the fab is just working to your order. Yeah. I mean, it would take you long enough to even find out who to call to try and pull forward something, you know? So it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's tough. But all you can all you can do is build the better relationships. And, and what I always used to try and teach my customers was you get one silver bullet, mm. okay? Now, we had, we had a case, I won't mention names, but we had a case where I got a phone call and it was a silver bullet phone call. Um, we'd had a big CM call, like a vice president call, because their their um, delivery truck with all our, with, I think they had something like forty seven thousand of our components on it, got hijacked. Okay, <laughs> all right. got nicked. Right? Oh no! And and it was like, and they had their big customer who was actually my my end OEM, and if we'd had to wait twelve weeks for delivery of product. We would have killed my end OEMs end of quarter and end of financial results. We'd mm. have killed them dead, okay, yeah. because they couldn't make what they were making with our, our chip. Mm. And um, this silver bullet I took to my VP in America, and they basically prioritized everything to the point of hand carrying all the material to the next stage of manufacture. And we had, all, I think, we had those 47,000 devices replaced within two weeks yeah and the oem we never even told the oem what we've done and i guess again there's a vertical business and and with good relationships and shorter supply chains because that's a bit extreme and there aren't that many well although given the way the market's gone at the minute it wouldn't surprise me if if suddenly it did start to see um trucks getting hijacked but uh actually with with a with a, a global supply chain it really doesn't take much for a container to get lost or fall off a yeah. ship or a ship to get stuck or, you know, problems at a port. So these very, very long global supply chains are, I think, I, 
I do feel like people have maybe forgotten some of the risk um, elements, you know, very focused on the cost today without really taking into account properly all of the risk costs of, of yep. operating a very, very long supply chain. No, no. There's a, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying about automotive, maybe pushing suppliers down the margin. There's a fundamental difference between price and cost. Mm. Okay. And you understand price well, but they don't understand cost. That If you cannot get out that one chip and you cannot, you cannot build a car because of, you know, if, if you cannot build a $30,000 car for the sake of a $5 chip, yeah, what's the cost of that? Yeah. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of that. Actually, the, the um, CEO of uh, VW Group talking um, about that at some length that, you know, we couldn't ship cars because of, it wasn't even $5 components. It was like 80 cents or something, but a uh, big problem in the industry. So in, in, um, in kind of a summary, if, if you were obviously loud and clear through this discussion about building better relationships with the supply chain, but if, if you were designing today, you know, if you were working on the other side of the fence as a, a developer of electronic systems, um, you know, so a, a user of parts, um, processors and power devices and, and et cetera, et cetera, what would you recommend to people? Like, what would you do if, if you need to launch a new product or you're working on a new design? How, how would you deal with the problems that exist in the, in the supply chain? I think, I think if, you're, if you're at the coalface and you're a designer and you're faced with designing a printed circuit board for whatever function, right? you need to have the relationship locally with the manufacturer, semiconductor manufacturer. You need to understand more about the chip. Mm. Um, you need to understand, is it, uh, is it a mature chip? Is it in mass production? Does, um, does it have hundreds of customers, right? Or does it have two customers globally who each take X million, yeah. right? You need to know what you're designing and you need to know, is it fabbed? So you need to know a lot more about it. Is it fabbed under your under the semiconductor its own fabs yep. is it uh, is it a is it does it go to an outside fab model uh, what about assembly what about test just know more about it right um how long is it going to last for right because the last thing i mean I've, I've seen companies designing um products which were primarily targeted for consumer applications that lasted a year mm. right so the chances are the manufacturer may obsolete the part Yep. within two years and you've got a product that's got to last 20 years <laughs> yeah, right? yeah so yeah the last thing you want is to have to tell your boss you're going to have to redesign the product for due to obsolescence issues because you chose a part that's not suitable for a long life application yeah and, and then the other thing about it is and we haven't even touched on it, is this always all the, all the aecq qualifications for semiconductors right it takes a lot of qualification. It takes a lot of work for a semiconductor guy to do these qualifications for automotive. Now, I'm just going to throw out there the fact that the fact that cars are becoming, they called it servers on wheels, right? Yeah. If you've got all this new functionality for autonomous driving and, and LIDAR and everything else, are these chips going to be automotive qualified? Yeah. Are the other semiconductor manufacturers going to make them automotive qualified? Or are they going to be commercial chips? Yeah, used in cars because you may not be able to get them in automotive qualification. What What's your view on uh, generic um, sort of com components? So we've got particularly for processors, 
obviously you've got very specific components, um, you know, and, and different different uh, suppliers have got their own technology and etc. But then we've got I don't know, so sort of something of a market starting to develop for generic parts, which are well things. That, I mean, you get microcontrollers, many st- some you know like fifty ones with uh, multiple suppliers. As long as you've actually tested and and really thrashed your design with two or three different supplier type products and the, and you're happy they all work then that gives you an option that does give you an option but if you're talking about something really really leading edge then that's more difficult right yeah so so the generic market is is possible but be aware that actually even though they're the same they're probably not exactly the same so you do need no. to um, test with with a couple of different ones to still have that flexibility. Yeah, and the same with the analog world. There's no such thing as a true second source uh, unless you're using the same wafer fab because the analog fabs, they all have their little quirks and idiosyncrasies, shall we call it. Um, I mean, you, your design might be optimum. So it might, it might be, you might be safe enough that you can use two different, two op amps from a different manufacturer. But if your design's marginal under temperature over temperature you know you might find that one manufacturer's chip works better than another manufacturer's chip yeah yeah i've actually personally been caught out by that in the past um this is years ago before we even thought about semiconductor crisis but uh had a supply issue with a particular part and we swapped it out and it was a very innocuous simple component we swapped it out for something which should have been a life flight replacement and it didn't work and causes all sorts of issues so um yeah <laughs> Like, just because they say they're the same doesn't necessarily mean they're the same. Uh, and and that, I think that comes back, the circle back there is the manufacturing processes for all of these things are so complicated that if it's coming out of a different factory, there's going to be some variation from the from the part. Uh, so you, you need to be aware of, of what those variations are. So, um, so then looking forwards, um, so in terms of, you know, being a designer's kind of, making sure that they, they get that engagement with suppliers, understand the parts properly, obsolescence plans. You have some really, some really good um, advice there. What, what, what's, if you had a crystal ball and you were kind of looking forwards, where do you think we're going to be as an industry in, in 12 months' time uh, or maybe further forward? So next, what's going to happen in the next uh, 12 months, the next two or three years? 12, 12 months is a short time. It really is. Um, I, hope, I hope there'll be less stress on the, on the whole supply chain in 12 months. I hope sourcing guys can sleep at night, manufacturing guys can sleep at night. Um, longer term, given this, the, the sheer rise of semiconductor content in cars and vehicles, I really, I really hope the automotive executive management are sitting down together and saying, how can we make it easier? How can we make it seamless? to have what kind of relationship do we want to ensure we're not constantly firefighting? Mm. You know, that, that's the, because this thing's coming, right? If you, regardless of what aspect of a car you're talking about, be it electrification, be it vehicle to vehicle to V to X, V to uh, I type communication, mm. yeah. uh, you know, in-car networking, yeah, you know, all the all the lidar type, radar type stuff, all the sensor fusion in the in the car, number of sensors. It's inevitable. You can't stop it. So you're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. Mm. And do you think the automotive 
world can yeah you know, I, I guess you've, you've sort of already answered this question but the the there's so many exciting other tech areas like robotics for example which we you know we've, we've not even scratched the surface of um in terms of applications for, for robots outside of industry and you know in the wild massive announcement from dyson in the last couple of weeks about what they're they're well, as robotics. much as Dyson ever tell you what they're planning yeah, to on, do. They were, they were looking at home robotics. Yeah, home domestic stuff. So with all of these other things coming through on top of, you know, consumer electronics, et cetera, do you think that automotive still has a has a voice, you know? Is is is, is it able to compete? Yeah. I, I think automotive's gonna get a bigger voice than it realizes. They right. just have to figure out how to channel that voice. Um yeah. Honestly, all the semi guys are focused on automotive. There's a tsunami of applications coming around. And, and it's not just hardware, right? I mean, it's all the software as well. Um, I mean, and then there's all these services, mm. right? All these 5G-enabled services that are coming along. Yeah. So it, the, there's a huge ecosystem. All and, and automotive is at the core of that ecosystem, along with communications, 5G, 6G. Yeah. Along with artificial intelligence, you know the metaverse, it's all coming together, and the platform is going to be the car. Yeah. So these automotive guys need to figure out what kind of conversations they should be having. Yeah. Right. And it, who they want to have them with. That's very interesting because because I, I, you mentioned about Tesla being an energy company, which you know they they that's what they say they are. I always thought one of their strengths and it's sort of almost a hidden strength is in autonomy and machine learning. Um, so I think they're very much ahead of the curve there. And and some, some of the things that they've announced that they're going to be doing like the Tesla robot, um, yeah. like actually people kind of go, what, why are they doing that? But when you think about it, it's a battery system, it's motors and drives and it's a big processor. It happens to be on legs rather than on wheels, but it's fundamentally the core skill sets that they've developed applied to a new application potentially, and and also probably helps them with quite a few problems they've got in terms of hiring people to do jobs in their own factories and plants and things, let alone selling it to other people. So, it, an interesting uh, interesting company doing things a little bit differently um, yeah. again. So, do do one last question, and then it's mindful of the time. So uh, we 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 do, but. Uh, do, do, do you envisage more automotive companies going vertical? So taking ownership for design or, or, or even perhaps manufacturing. So I know really the only one who's in the, in public sort of putting an investment in is as a tier one is Bosch um, in their own manufacturing uh, capacity. Do you see others following and doing the same? Um, well, I saw an interesting article last week, uh, last week about, I think it was Bosch buying, other companies to get allow them about allow to allow Bosch to get more into autonomous driving. Right. Right. So I mean again it's fascinating. It really is whether the whole relationship between the automotive OEM and the tier one. So the automotive OEM have hired hundreds of electronic engineers. Right. And I always used to wonder, what do these guys actually do? <laughs> right. No, seriously, because yeah. well, did, do they just want to write better specifications that they can give their tier one suppliers? Yeah. Or do they want to do something themselves? And I think the answer is probably a bit of both, mm. but they do want to do. So the question is then within the car, what do the OEMs want to take ownership of? 
Yeah. Right? And that's what I was never clear of as to what functionality they'll take ownership of. And then because they could, you jump back to the linear tech days on lithium-ion battery chargers, you know, the, the automotive OEM couldn't say to the, the tier one, use this linear tech uh, lithium-ion battery BMS chipset. Yep. Because if it screwed up, if it, if, it, if it failed in the field for whatever reason, the tier one would say, hey, you told us to use that. Yeah, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, okay? yeah. So again, it goes back to what what bits of the car functionality do the OEMs want to take ownership of? What do they have the capability to take ownership of? Um, and it's, and to offset that, the tier ones are trying to become more capable. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I don't know where it's, it's fascinating. Where it's all going to end up, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, are we going to see consolidation? Are we going to have an automotive OEM buying a tier, a big tier one? We I just, don't know. I mean, even that—that's an interest because it, in some ways that sounds crazy, but actually, you know, all the big tier one—well, not all of them, but many of the large tier ones came out of OEMs in the first place. Like they were part of an OEM and they were span out years ago because it was seen as a better business model to have the tier one supply outside and, and introduce competition between competing tier ones. But now actually you look at you know, say Tesla or some of the other new OEMs and they are doing a lot more in-house than a traditional OEM, which is interesting because they're a newer company. So they've had to develop those skills more quickly. And, and actually in the case of Tesla, you know, running very deep partnerships, so on the battery side, very, very deep partnership um, Tesla have had for, for a long time. Uh, but also on the semiconductor side, you know, they cooperate very, very deeply uh, with their suppliers um, and obviously some some issues on the bigger processors and they've gone their own way or going their own way on that. Um, but on um, power devices and things, you know, again, very deep supply chain relationships that they develop there. So it is, it is um, an interesting one in terms of where the older or more traditional OEMs are going to end up landing and, and what that relationship looks like. There's certainly been, because whilst there hasn't been an OEM buying a tier one to my knowledge, but there's been a heck of a lot of consolidation in the tier one world, you know, mm -hmm. and particularly driven by um, electrification and acquiring companies with more skills and expertise in electronics and software development. I mean, that's, that's, the, the biggie, whether that's around battery systems or power conversion, motors and drives, et cetera. But a huge amount of um, of activity on uh, on that on that front. Someone's going to correct me on that because maybe it has been an OEM. Mm. I'm trying to think. There, there, there probably has been an OEM acquiring a, a, a tier one, but uh, there, there's been a lot of tier ones acquiring tier ones and big tier ones acquiring little tier ones. And I mean, yeah, mm. that, that space in automotive has been absolutely... Uh, live interestingly what we haven't seen yet is a a tier one really acquiring um you know any anything across like a semiconductor manufacturing business you know which which might seem a logical way forwards but uh that, and that, that doesn't seem to have happened yet i think it goes back to cost mm. right come on you can, i mean do they have a spare 20 billion euros to, <laughs> to go buy a semiconductor company but um just one one other aspect of about having Automotive OEMs do some technology stuff themselves. There's one benefit of that is they move faster. Okay, they can mm. move much faster, so they can adapt and time to market quicker than 
than having to deal with tier ones, tier twos, and bolt all together. So again, it goes back to that's why I think Tesla got the lead in in terms of getting to market first. Um, you've got to stay ahead of your competition. You've got to be fast. Yeah. So there is that element to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and that that is a really good point to end it. So uh, staying ahead of the competition, staying fast, keeping nimble. Uh, it's been fascinating, Alistair. Thanks so much for taking the time out. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Ryan. Talk to you soon. Brilliant. Thank you.